This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, well, we've been talking about it quite a bit today, if only because it's a massive deal, multi-billion dollar deal. Yes. It's driving a bunch of tech stocks, and one of the companies involved, in, in fact, the acquirer is the number one gainer in the S&P, talking about NVIDIA. Anand Trinavasan is senior semiconductor and hardware analyst, our chip guy. He works for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So Anand, investors seem to like this a lot. Why? Uh, look, this is a financially accretive deal, and NVIDIA's core business is slowing, and there's some chinks in that armor. In our minds, while it is financially accretive, it's these are companies of birds of slightly different feathers. So in trying to put them together in the near term, they themselves admit it, there's no revenue synergy, there's no cost synergy. Company A plus company B equals company A plus B. Earnings power is the combined earnings power of the two. Revenue power is the combined earnings power of the two. Now, in the long term, NVIDIA sees the convergence of computing, advanced computing power, which uh, NVIDIA's chips um, uh, power, and advanced networking functions, which Mellanox's chips power, they envision these two uh, combining effectively. And particularly at the high end when servers for AI are used for high-performance computing are used. That's all well and good, but in the near term, the way we view it is financially accretive. There's no question about it. But you've got core problems here, and you're doing this deal potentially to distract from those core problems. Mm. The core uh, problems the being? The core problems being you make one chip and you do an excellent job out of it. Which you're is talking graphic, about NVIDIA. NVIDIA, yeah. right? So they make graphics processing units, and they've used, they started being used in, uh, effectively to power monitors. It went on to power gaming. Now the same function happens to power AI-based algorithms which is fantastic. They haven't done anything different, is that the market has naturally expanded for them and they've been at the forefront of it, they've taken advantage of it. But the problem is, you know, you're now getting into networking, which is an area you are not familiar with. Um, Yes, they're adjacent to one another in the data center, but you haven't done this before, number one. Number two, you haven't acquired large companies before, period. Um, Number three, is that while there are adjacencies, you're not a roll-up type company, you're not Broadcom, you're not Intel. So I tend to hesitate. You you have got a company that has done one thing and one thing exceptionally well, remarkable focus. And now you're widening that focus a little bit um, through a a, a largest acquisition, um, through um, a company with substantial presence in a different country, different region. Right. So all of those adds risk in my mind. Financially, slam dunk. But uh, again, when the deal closes... Right. Uh, so i got to ask you, I mean, I would imagine, especially given the reaction here, that this was a sought-after asset. Right. Uh, so who else? Uh, so what Intel, you Intel and Broadcom were the two um, likely acquirers here. Broadcom would may have had some antitrust issues in this um, in this particular segment, but uh, um, uh, Intel would have been was talked about. Intel and Xilinx were the two talked right. about suitors for this particular company. Now 
you can say, okay, it's a defensive move. I'll, uh, I, by acquiring this company, I prevent my competition from acquiring this company. So you could argue that that, that is the case. But I generally, um, success has come from companies that have uh, executed and operated on with, with focus and then repetitively taken that focus to a different industry, slowly, slowly, slowly acquired or built um, individual silos and then put them together. Um, this is a step in that direction, right? Uh, but this is not a company with a history of large acquisitions. I mean, I'd hate to be this simplistic, but is this more about <laughs> NVIDIA saying, I don't really want Intel to have this because Intel owning Mellanox, that's something I got to be nervous about. Possibly. I mean, look, Intel already has networking capabilities, right? Both in the optical side as well as on the Ethernet side. Um, and NVIDIA didn't. So up until this point, Intel had networking capabilities in NVIDIA didn't. And uh, NVIDIA's core statement is that CPUs are not good enough for uh, the future of computing. They're slowing. The Moore's Law isn't working for them. GPUs are the future of computing. So if, that, if, if you were that excited about the future of computing, nothing about networking, why would you care? Um, so... Those are some of the parts that don't completely jive for us. They had a call today. Uh, our views are unchanged post the call. Um, we are very excited about what G uh, NVIDIA has in GPUs and the future of gaming and the future of data center with G G GPU products from NVIDIA. We would have liked to see them execute their way out of the current rut that they have in the in the mm -hmm. data center and uh, sorry in the gaming business so the socks the philly semiconductor index is up two and a half percent today its first gain since march 4th mm -hmm. uh is this is, deal driving it yeah. i mean what, what's behind so it? is so if this deal uh the this is a large m a deal in the semiconductor space we've had an absence of that over the last so everybody months. goes ooh, deal making exactly <laughs> exactly what's and the next? semiconductor industry is rife with um one of the things that you've seen in the internet space and in the computing space is platforms are winning yeah big platforms bigger the better wider the better right now, beneath that as well, if you're not a scale player in the semiconductor industry, both with variety as well as the depth of silicon and expertise, you're going to be a part of somebody else, right? And that's what's happening here. You have, uh, and the semiconductor industry is rife with small niche feature providers and one or two or three large platform consolidators, Intel, Broadcom, and now NVIDIA. So, um, so the semiconductor industry is uh, justifiably very excited if, in fact, this is the heralding of um, deal-making 2.0. We shall see. We shall see. Anand, thank you so much. Thank really you appreciate for having it. me. Anand Srinivasan. He's our senior semiconductor and hardware analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. As Jason mentioned earlier, NVIDIA, your number one gainer in the S&P 500. That stock up 7.3%. That's the acquirer, the target. Mellanox, that stock is up 8.2%, pretty much hovering near its highs of this session. Everybody's happy. <laughs> this is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Boeing, the shares are falling, and for a very tragic reason, a, tr a crash over the weekend uh, of a 737 MAX jetliner. This is the second such crash that we've seen of late. The shares dropping the most since 2001. Jim Ellis is here with us. He is Assistant Managing Editor for Bloomberg Business Week. So Jim, help us understand what's going on here because obviously there's a question of safety for consumers. There's a question of safety for airline operators as well around this plane 
given this succession of tragedies? What do you know? This is always the um, the nightmare for any airframe manufacturer. It's not just for the airlines themselves, but also for the person who's uh, for the company that's made the plane. Um, and it's always uh, the 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 that we get whenever we have a tragedy. But this has been made worse simply because this is the second time this has happened on the same model within five months. And um, the uh, the 737 MAX is a very important plane for uh, Boeing. I mean, the current plan is to get this up to the um, uh, production cycle to make about $30 billion in sales per year starting after this year. So it is uh, the most successful jet in history. It is also the biggest selling jet at Boeing. This is a narrow-body jet that um, uh, is a, is a the, thir- the 737 has been around for a long time, but the MAX version is a very fuel-efficient version that um, airlines are crazy about having right now. They want it because you can put more people into the plane and get about 15% better fuel economy. You put that together, and all of a sudden, people who thought they couldn't operate a route because they were a low-fare carrier or because they just needed some way to compete against low-fare carriers, they run to this. So you've seen people like Lion Air in Asia. You've seen people like SpiceJet in India. Here in the U.S., Southwest is making a really big bet on this plane. Air Canada. I mean, this is a truly global success story that all of a sudden has a cloud hanging over it. And so that's one reason that investors have been very, very spooked by this. They're saying if this plane, which is right now the big future of Boeing, can't make it or might have to be grounded for a while, who knows what that means for the profitability long term for the company. What's interesting, too, though, is this is mostly a plane that's outside the United States at this point. Give us some perspective on that. Well, at this point, um, a lot of the units are outside the U.S., but also there are a lot of U.S. buyers. I mean, American, United, um, uh, Southwest, Delta is not on the uh, plan for this, but others are. But especially outside the, and in emerging markets, this is going to be a huge seller. People like SpiceJet, which is going to be a very, very large airline. Lion, which is betting a lot of its future. Lion is an Indonesian airline, but it has units in other parts of Asia, like Thailand. And um, so right now, from the current deliveries, a lot of the deliveries are outside the U.S., including in China. All three of the Chinese-owned carriers, you know, Air China, China Southern, China Eastern, all have this plane in their um, uh, uh, fleets. And that's one of the scary things for a lot of people in the airline business or the airframe business Mm. is that China has now grounded all, you know, 737 MAXs in China. And that's almost 100 planes already delivered. To be fair, and we should point out that they've found, right, they've recovered the cockpit voice and flight data recorder. So to be fair, I mean, that will be, that will go a long way. In That'll go a long way in explaining exactly sort happened. of uh, what happened. What happened, but that takes a while. And so right now, a lot of people have been piecing together, a lot of investors have been trying to piece together what might have happened. And there are some similarities to the Lion Air crash. Mm-hmm. 
that uh, based on the way that the uh, side of impact looks, it looks like it was a nose down uh, Mm -hmm. crash like the Lion Air flight. And that is uh, sort of leads one to question whether it's similar. uh, There's a similar problem to the software that we discovered went wrong with this plane during the Lion Air crash that's forcing the nose down and it forces the pilots to to fight that. Now, Boeing had given guidance on ways to disable those automatic systems, but the question always comes up whether there's been enough training to, uh, you know, so, and whether there's been enough information spread around the world for a plane that's already deployed so widely as this one. And especially when it happens so soon after takeoff. Correct. It's right. happened just minutes after takeoff, right. exactly like the Lion plane. Well, and we should mention uh, headlines crossing the Bloomberg right now. In fact, uh, uh, D- Secretary uh, Elaine Chow, the Department of Transportation Secretary, making some comments on the crash during a White House budget call, saying she has met with FAA officials to review the crashes and the pass forward for airlines, presumably here in the United States, in terms of what steps the FAA here in the United States may make as it relates to this latest crash. Jim Ellis, Assistant Managing Editor for Bloomberg Business Week, uh, thank you so much, as always, for your insights. It's time for another edition of Business Week Talks. With us is Glenn Fogel, Booking Holdings CEO and President, of course, home to such well-known brands as Priceline, Booking.com, Kayak, and more. And Glenn, I've got to say, I feel like it's an interesting time because there's so much going on. And just recently, we know that we had Airbnb buying Hotel Tonight. And I'm curious because they tried to make a bigger presence in the boutique hotel business and uh, the bed and breakfast space. What does it mean for you? What are the implications? Well, it didn't surprise me. Um, You know, we've been talking about one of our great advantages that you can come to our site and you can see a hotel or you can get a home, an apartment, whatever you want. Look at one place. So for them to copy us and basically start expanding out into the hotel area too. Well, I see it's flattery. And uh, look, it's it's great. I I knew the I know the CEO over at uh, Hotel Tonight. I'm happy for him. Nice place to find a place to park the uh, company. Good for them. For us, though, we still think we have a better product. And so how does it, how has that changed the mix? Because obviously Airbnb, VRBO, and the other home rental sites, I feel like, you know, we talk about it all Mm -hmm. the time. It's become sort of a go-to choice for a lot of people. How does that change the mix? How is the revenue, how's the profitability different as you introduce that more robustly uh, into the product set? So we were pretty happy in our earnings call uh, just two weeks ago. We announced for the first time that we did $2.8 billion of revenue in that area in one quarter, the third quarter, we did over a billion dollars. So it's growing, and we like that. It's as profitable in terms of the take rate, what you take from the host and a commission type thing. It's a little bit more expensive, though, to run because you can't scale all of your costs across a very large property. So you have to deal with individual property owners. That's a little more costly. End of the day, though, it's all incremental. Glenn, what's the upside, what's the downside, though, to it becoming a much more competitive space? Well, you know, obviously nobody, everybody likes to have a world where you're the only player in it. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not it. Travel is such an enormous business, two trillion, maybe more in terms of total amount of sales and travel around the world. Big opportunity for everybody. We're glad to be the biggest player there by far. We love the fact that there's a lot of opportunity left for us. We only do 9% of the total hotel rooms in our own space. That's a lot of opportunity we don't do 9%. But what kind of strategy changes do you have to do as the competition gets tougher? Well, you always have to provide more value. That's the thing. You've got to provide more value both to the customer who's going to be traveling and the other side of the equation, which is the host or the supplier or hotel owner. And the way you do that is using technology. That's one of the things we are 
built on technology, going out, getting really, really smart people, AI specialists, people who can understand the data so you can come up with a better solution for both sides of that marketplace. So let's talk about your brands because you've got some well-known brands, but you've got multiples. You've got Priceline, you have Kayak, you have Agoda. How do you sort of manage that portfolio going forward? Do a couple of the brands become more dominant? How do you see that evolving? Booking.com is by far our biggest brand, but every single one of them is very important to the success of the company. Now, we have been bringing a couple of them closer together. So a year ago in December, we brought together rentalcars.com and booking.com because we know how important it is for a customer who's going to be going anywhere. You need ground transportation along with a hotel. You've got to be able to do that. On the other side, we brought together the area of open table and kayak together, not so much because when you're looking, searching for a flight that you need a restaurant, but because the technologists there are just super smart. And we want to be able to share that ability across both platforms. Got to ask you about Google and Facebook, because I think about when I'm starting to travel, the first thing I do is I go on Google, right? And I search around and I start looking for things. Are they the ultimate competitors? Do you watch what they're doing? Because they well, have access to so many people, so much information. I don't think anybody can go to sleep and not be concerned about what will Google do next or Facebook do next or Amazon do next. And that's just in the U.S. So you've got Alibaba. Mm-hmm. You've got other uh, people over at Tencent. You've got Baidu. Lots of really big technology-oriented uh, people who, if they wanted to, perhaps could do something. The fact is, though, it's a lot harder than you think. You know, we have thousands of people every day who are calling on hotels to make sure we're getting the best prices for our customer and working those relationships. That's not just technology. That's boots on the ground. That's an advantage. All right. Got to ask you, you and I were talking right before we came on air. You've been at this company almost two decades, more than Mm -hmm. two decades. Uh, How has the travel business changed? How has running essentially a travel services business changed during that time period? You know, I was thinking about that, how much things have changed in the one sense of technology. Because I remember we started off when you're on AOL dial-up and trying (laughs) to connect and trying to buy something. Oh, my God. I remember travel agents. Not to date myself or anything, but... (laughs) Well, there still are travel agents, right? Less so. And that's one of the things now when you can use your phone that mobile central thing to do everything, what a difference that it makes things so easier. But it's not as easy as it should be. Think about all the troubles you've had traveling. Think about all the problems of booking something and then something goes wrong and how do you fix it? And the fact that you have to enter your credit card several times. We are building a frictionless solution. That's what we want at the end of the day is that you just have to do it once and it's done. And if anything goes wrong, there's somebody who knows everything that happened can fix it. And when you use AI, it's figure out where that problem is before it even happens and make corrections or suggest those corrections to you before it happens. So spending on technology, obviously, for the platform, but you're also spending on marketing. And you, you know that your stock took a little bit of a hit, the latest earnings, because of concerns about spending on marketing. What specifically will we be spending on? Well, I don't think, it, I don't think that's the reason, by the way. One of the things that we talked in our earnings call was the fact that parts of the world are a little softer economically than perhaps they thought they were going to be, Western Europe in particular, and Western Europe is by far our biggest area. So that's one issue. Regarding brand advertising, we know how important it is to make sure that we are well-known everywhere. When you go to the U.S. and you ask somebody, where can I get a home or an apartment? They may not think of Booking.com first. 
that's something we need to correct. If you go to Europe, you go to a capital city, they say, I need an apartment. They'll think booking.com. We need to use brand advertising so people understand that we have this great product, a better product, I think, because first of all, when you use our home product, it's instantly confirmable right away. You're not going back and forth with some host deciding whether you can get it or whether you can't get it, and you find out you don't get it. With us, right away, you get it. Then on top of that, we don't hit you with the traveler's fee. After you go through all that aggravation, you finally get it, and then you hit a traveler's fee. To me, that's a absurd. We don't charge them that. And we have that 24-7 customer service. Anything goes wrong, we're going to fix it for you. All right, 30 seconds to go. How's the consumer, how's the traveler feeling right now globally? Nervous? Confident? How would you describe them? Well, it depends on what part of the world you're in right now. So if you're in the well, you U.S. you do a lot in Europe. Just got about we 20 do, seconds. We do, right. And, and we mentioned that there's some issues, not only the economy, but let's face it, Brexit causes uncertainty among people. So when you're thinking about, I'm thinking about going somewhere in Europe and you're English and you're thinking, am I going to go? Should I not go? What's going to happen? So they may wait to book until they see what happens next week and the week after that. Uh, in France, there's been some political uncertainty. Who knows? But yeah. in the long run, people like to travel. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Glenn, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Glenn Fogle. So long. Farewell. I'll be I was so hoping he was going to play this. All right. So as the bull market is now officially a decade old, it might be time to bid adieu. Did I say it right? Adieu. Adieu. Adieu, adieu, adieu to the golden era of Fang stocks. Let's get into this story with Yi Shi, global markets reporter at Bloomberg News. Also here, Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. And Yi, let's start with you because it is kind of a, a great time, 10 years in uh, the bull market, to kind of take stock of where we are. You specifically address the era of Fang stocks, which has certainly provided a lot of upward momentum to the overall trade. Definitely. Um, the tax stock has been a superstar in this bull market. They returned more than 500% over the last 10 years, way above the 300 return in the S&P. Um, um, more strikingly is that profit margin of these companies just uh, run away, like they increased to 30% uh, on average compared to 17% in 1990. Um, it's just like this kind of a runaway in profitability seems to be unsustainable because uh, in economic theory one-to-one, if industry become more profitable, you have more company come into the market and uh, increase the imp- competition and the lower the margins. Yeah, and yet that hasn't happened, right? Yeah, because exactly. it, it's like they, they've maintained um, this, this rally that's sort of unprecedented and compete with each other, but yet the the mean reverting profitability trends that you're talking about haven't really happened. Why? Because um, one is this market become increasing a winners take all. You have more and more big companies, like say. Um, uh, uh, all these companies buying small competitors. Because right? in they Amazon's case, right, exactly. they just snap up everybody else. Exactly. It's become like one or two players dominating the market and just maintain their margins. And Joel, I, I mean, I feel like this is a this is a story that you guys have told from different angles, sort of the story of the fangs in in the magazine. I think about a lot of cover stories that have essentially tried to assess who these companies are, what investors think about them, what role they even play. I think you're underselling it. it, it we, we've actually <laughs> done that. We've not tried to do it. We've done it. Uh, but I, what done I thought it was, brilliantly. What, Stick a fork in it. What I thought was done. actually compelling about this was that here we are just on the heels of a 10th birthday. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And a 10th birthday is one that you talk about if you've listened to the Patton Oswald skit about birthdays. You talk about 10. Nobody talks about 11. Right? Yeah. So, so when you look ahead at this, you, like – what are the trends that you guys are looking at 
because it's not going to keep going. It's fundamentally what you're yeah, saying. So where's of, it going to come from? One of the catalysts that could change all this dynamic is increasing regulations. Uh, we have a Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, wrote a proposal Friday saying that, that we need to break up all these companies, uh, Amazon, Google, Facebook, because these guys are just the dominating um, essentially have too much power over our society, over democracy, over the economy. They are crushing their competitors. Um. Well, and to that point, was it just this past week, there was a great story about Amazon's growing presence in terms of Washington. But at the same time, I just think about all of these industries where people like point the finger, but then they just kind of up their spending in Washington and they get the ears of lawmakers. And I think about re-elections. And so the cycle just happens. Yep. Which makes me think that protects their positions. But that, you know, buried in this little thing that you, this note that you wrote up, this Mac review, which was so great, you, was something that I thought was really um, interesting because it goes beyond sort of the political backlash. But when you kind of, when you step back and think about it, part of this is that the tech companies aren't necessarily classified as tech companies anymore. Some of them are com- classified as Con- communication mm-hmm. companies. Mm-hmm. And, and then on top of that, it's like they're, the, the growth that they've seen has really come from discretionary consumer spending. Yeah. That's been the thing. So we've seen a lot of this power come from the consumer. So when you kind of like break down the sectors and stuff, like where where do you think the breakout could come from if there's a big change to what the fangs have been? Yeah, I, th- I think the, uh, again, the increasing uh, scrutiny by regulators because a lot of these consumer, like say Google, Facebook, they're essentially mining all these data. The data has become the commodity of this century um, compared to oil. This is like a black new oil. And the data, a lot of data relate to the privacy. Um, if you look at the AI or like the Facebook or these users' information. So, and increasingly, this is attracting criticism or scrutiny from the uh, regulators. Already, Facebook has spent tons of money just to, to step up the plate and uh, try to protect the privacy better more. This essentially going to increase in their cost and the crashing their margins. Right, and it doesn't feel like this is a story that's going away. I mean, we think about all those uh, tech CEOs going up to Capitol Hill last year and essentially answering answering for their behavior, for lack of a better term. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, but you let me drive. Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. David Dietz, founder, president, chief investment strategist for Point View Wealth Management. He's based out in Summit, New Jersey. He's here with Carol and myself in New York City today. DD, always good to have you with us. So what's on your mind in this market? We, you know, we talked at the top of the show, green on the screen today after a lot of red last week, uh, a more optimistic week. What are people seeing? 
Well, so, I mean, I think right now people are kind of pinching themselves because we've had a tremendous run-up with the start of the year, you know, one of the best starts of the year in several decades, and people are saying, is this the time to, to get out? And so, you know, we've really gone back to the drawing boards, and we see, you know, a couple issues that are so critical that I think actually could be falling in, in the favor of uh, investors. One, of course, is the Federal Reserve, who at the start of this year did a 180-degree turn, talked about being patient, data-dependent. I saw his performance last night on 60 Minutes. I thought it was wonderful. You walked away with saying this is a very reasonable guy who's going to stay in the job and he is not going to do anything rash. I think that is good to keep interest rates stable. And then, of course, I thought it was nice that you know yesterday we learned that the Chinese have agreed not to play games with their currency, not to try and take back whatever they might agree on in terms of the, the tariff negotiations. That's another big issue and that worked out positively for I investors. I love that you said he's stable. David, in December... <laughs> Right. He was, go, you know, everybody was getting ready for the Fed to raise rates. And then all of a sudden we got a 180. Um, I don't know how you define stability, but that was not stable. Come on, be fair. That was in a 180 turn that we got from the Fed chief. You know, I, I couldn't believe December because December is traditionally an up month. Policymakers do everything possible not to harm the right. traditional big Santa retail Claus rally, season. Yeah, all that a, stuff. a lot of parts of the economy make most of their profits in that time of year. So, you know, I guess you could also look at it. Well, where are we off of our highs? We're about six or seven percent off of our highs. So you could also say, gee, we've still got a little more room to go. We are actually bullish here because we think at the end of the day, earnings will come in stronger this year than last year. The rate of growth won't be as good. We don't have a, a new tax cut to propel us the way we had last year. And at the, at the same time, with these interest rates stable, you got that 10-year treasury, you know, 2.64, something like that. I think multiples can expand a little bit. So I would not be surprised to see us setting and surpassing to new highs in 2019. So we're still 5% off on the S&P. P 500 from that September uh, 20th high. I mean, what what do you think is, though, the accurate story? Was it the selling we saw in December? Was it the bounce back? Is it worries over corporate earnings and the economy slowing down? What's the what's the correct market story right now? Well, so I think the, the, the mantra is the only thing that can really kill a bull market is a recession. And what we had is we had um, Jerome Powell doing the best he could, a new guy in the job, talking about we're a long way from neutral. That was in early October. And meanwhile, you looked overseas, you saw things deteriorating in China for a lot of reasons, maybe the trade tariffs, maybe just fundamentals. Europe was not doing well either. And I think investors are worried this guy doesn't see the deterioration and he's going to you know, murder this bull market by keeping interest rates too high. And, and so that took us down and all of a sudden he got religion, as it were, and changed his tune. I do love the idea of, you know, bull markets don't uh, die of old age. They get murdered. Uh, so let's talk about some names. Dave, you know that uh, Carol and I love to get into the names. Uh, Verizon is one that you like. Tell us why. So, you know, first of all, put into context, we are getting close to new highs. We want to be more conservative. We want companies that own their marketplaces, which are returning money to shareholders, reasonable valuations. And Verizon is just in front of our noses. I've talked with a lot of people. I said, what's more important to you, having Verizon service or Samsung versus an iPhone? And they said, the service. You know, I need to hear clearly. I don't want to drop call. I can deal with either one. At the same time, so many people are saying, well, you know, Apple's going to do well because they have this recurring revenues. I'm saying, hold it. Verizon gives you recurring revenues and exposure to the smartphone market. We're talking about a four 
4.3% dividend. Clearly the most profitable service because they really own that wireless space. And relatively cheap, as you mentioned. Yeah, Yeah, 12 times earnings. That's a nice discount to the market. Talk to us about CVS. As we know, it took a a real big beating uh, on concerns about uh, its acquisition. Was it the Omnicare deal, right? took a big write-down and so on and so forth. Was it a $2.2 billion write-down? What's your thinking when it comes to CVS? Well, so, you know, they have the chance to be the most powerful healthcare company in the world, really. They have just acquired Aetna, which vertically integrates them into the health insurance market. At the same time, um, you know, you're talking about writing one5 4 billion scripts per year, 20 million people in their network, 9,500 stores coast to coast. So what they can do is sell the insurance, provide the drugs, and also they're starting to open up minute clinics since they can provide the service. I think there's room for a lot of tie-ins. So you don't care about this write-down. You're like, that's backward looking. You you know, you're not actually using cash. You're just admitting to what the actual (laughs) asset values are now. Um, Meanwhile, we got close to a 4% dividend eight times forward earnings, uh, what am I missing? All right, Exxon, I feel like any time that name comes up, people are like, seriously, Exxon, it's 2019. Come on. Well, you know, at the end of the day, we still have to fill up our cars. Yep. We still want to go to spring break on jets and so forth. And I mean, you know, energy, of course, has been down in the dumps for a long time. It's, you know, the fossil fuel price is about half where they were in 2014. In periods of uncertainty, go with the big guy. And Exxon, you know, meets that criteria because, of course, it's uh, integrated across all all, all the areas of uh, energy production. And, of course, they're the largest refiner in the world, largest chemical user in the world. And, of course, if you're concerned about domestic politics, they're diversified worldwide. You've got like a 4.3% dividend, um, you know, good balance sheet. They are investing for the long haul. I'd like it to have some exposure to the area. Whenever uh, Carol is going on spring break and filling up her jet, I do think, <laughs> so, Exxon, it's a good buy. But what I did know is a common denominator was dividends. Yeah. So whatever happens with the share price or whatever happens big picture, you've got some really significant dividends with each of these three plays. People say, well, how do I stay in the market? I say, well, here are your choices. You've got... 2.64% on the 10-year treasury, you're locked in for 10 years, or I can offer you a Verizon, for example, 4.3%, almost double, which historically has grown 5 to 10% per year. Where after 10 years are you going to do better, and who's going to be smart enough to get in and out, um, zig and zag in the meantime? I'm a big David Dietz fan. I'm long <laughs> David Dietz. He is uh, such a good guy. Founder, president, chief zagging, investment right? strategist. He zigged and zagged his way from Summit to New York City. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.